0: Good morning. Welcome to Conversion Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors. i got to ask a serious question. How are we liking this wonderful cold weather right now? We enjoying it? Yeah? we got some fall people here? I like fall. I really do like fall. The problem is this. Fall triggers a completely different Jameson. So what happens when the weather turns cold is uh, basically all I eat is carbs. Every day, all day. Like when we sing a song like, you know, Jesus, there's nothing better than you, my brain goes, have you ever tasted a pumpkin roll? Like, like seriously, like, like as I was singing, I was just like, man, like. But how many of us struggle with that feeling? That feeling of having Jesus be better than everything else in our lives, having Jesus be the most important thing to us. I think that's a reality that all of us struggle with. If this is your first time at Convergent Church, Welcome. We're very excited to have you here. If you're joining us for the first time, we're walking through the Gospel of John in a series that we call Walking with the Word. And what we've been doing is we've sort of been taking a deep dive into the life of Jesus. Very much uh, been exposing the humanity of Jesus and how he was like us. But as I looked at our text today, I just realized that today, I just have to preach a big Jesus. I have to preach a powerful, supreme, sovereign, awesome Jesus. And so if I get a little bit excited and I get a little bit loud, and this is your first time here, I apologize ahead of time. But I'm excited. You know, when I was young, one of my, my favorite things to do was uh, to play those choose-your-own-adventure video games. Anybody ever played those? Maybe you've, maybe you've read those choose-your-own-adventure books. Now in these games, the choices you make throughout the adventure or the journey shapes the ending of your story. And each of these these games or books had the possibility of multiple endings. Now when I was young, I wasn't very good at these games. Okay? Young Jameson died a lot at Choose Your Own Adventure games. Like whether it was eaten by a T-Rex or drowning in a flood or abducted by a UFO, I always seemed to choose the wrong endings. I never got the, the nice endings. And I would get so frustrated when I was a kid, I would take the controller and I would throw it across the room and I would stomp out of the room. I'd get incredibly frustrated. I would often walk away from these games thinking, why can't I have infinite lives? Like, why do I have to die at the end? Why can't I just live forever? And why do these choices matter so much? Why can't I just Choose the ending that I want. Now today, as we work through a a short but dense passage of just five verses in the book of John, I'd like to try and answer this question for us, and it's this. How can I live forever? How can I live forever? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 5, and we're going to just go ahead and read verses 25 through 29. John chapter 5, 25 through 29 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now we're in the middle of chapter 5 here in in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is being interrogated by men whom we call the Pharisees. These men were law keepers who believed they could ultimately be saved by the good works that they did. That if they just followed God's law to the T, God would ultimately find them worthy and would save them. The problem with these men was that they often stressed trivial matters, like what you could do on the Sabbath, or how much you tithed, or what the truth of work was, while ignoring the weightier matters, like honoring and loving God and doing good to your fellow man. And what's happening here in chapter 5 is on the aftermath of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath who was paralyzed for 38 years, these men come to Jesus and they're accusing him of breaking God's law for working on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day where all of God's people were called to rest and abstain from their work. And what we're witnessing here is a portion of Jesus' rebuttal to that charge against him. If you look closely at our world you will witness people racing every single day against death. Whether it's antioxidant rich foods or expensive gym memberships, whether it's taking cold plunges into rivers, many people are attempting to prolong their natural life. But what many of us fail to realize is that the Bible teaches, and Jesus tells us in this passage that, All people are born dead. That is spiritually dead. What we call dead in sin. We are all spiritually dead men and women running daily from the specter of a physical death. And one of the most tragic things about our fallen world is that no matter how great of a life we lead, no matter how much exercise we do, how much Love and joy we fill our lives with, no matter how many memorable experiences we have, eventually time runs out for everyone. Everyone ultimately dies. And like the Pharisees, we tend to stress comparatively trivial things while ignoring the weightier matter of the state of our eternal souls. We face two monumental obstacles, the first being this, we are condemned by our actions. Paul says this in Romans 5.12, he says this, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is a falling short of God's perfect standard. It is failing to be holy as God is holy. Holy. And it brings with it a curse of spiritual death, which entered our world through Adam, who was our first parent, the first created man, when he defied God and he disobeyed God's direct commands. The Bible tells us that we likewise have all gladly chosen that same path. Isaiah 53.6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Because we choose sin, our choices condemn us. And that condemnation proves that we are spiritually dead rebels like our father, Adam. That's our first big obstacle that we all face. The second is this, we are also condemned by our nature. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.3 that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin has corrupted every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies, You might ask the question, Pastor Jameson, does that mean we can do no good? No, sure. We can do good things. And because of God's grace, none of us are as sinful as we could possibly be. He gives us grace and puts stops against the things we might do. But on our own, the Bible teaches us that there's nothing good inherently in us. It says this, even the good things that we attempt to do are ultimately sinful because they come from a heart that is tainted with sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Jesus said in chapter 8, verse 34 of the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. By nature, we are born enslaved to the domineering power of sin, with no hope of escaping its shackles. Now, it would be nice if it was a matter of simply choosing better actions. I think most of us could handle that. Saying, well, if I'm doing things that are wrong, I will simply do things that are right. But unfortunately, it's, it's not that easy for us. Because we have the same nature as our father Adam, we need a new and better nature than the one we've inherited from him. The gospel and the Bible tells us that we actually need new hearts. We must be born again into new life to even begin to long to be released from sin's shackles on us. The Bible is clear that we cannot do this on our own or even desire to do this. Only the Son of God can bring the spiritually dead to life. And this is our first point. Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. When we started the Gospel of John back in chapter 1, this is how the book of the Gospel of John begins. It begins like this. It's a bold declaration of who Jesus truly is. It says, In the beginning was the Word. Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I know I've given you some bad news about our state of our, our souls, but here's good news. Since the fall of humanity, God has been graciously granting new life to the spiritually dead. His heart beats to bring those who are dead in their sins into new life. God loves his world, and even though it's fallen and and run away from him, as the Bible says, he has been chasing after it. Since sin's darkness enveloped our world, God has always kept a light burning, drawing those who are spiritually dead to Himself like a moth is drawn to a flame. And those redeemed by God have always been redeemed by hearing what God has to say and believing that His words are true. From Seth, the son of Adam, to Noah, was saved by believing God and building an ark which saved his family, from Abraham who listened to God and it says he was justified by his believing, to Isaac and Jacob who personally saw God and obeyed his will, to David who no matter the trial No matter the tribulation, no matter the persecution, no matter the struggle that he went to, believed the promises of God and hoped in them for his very life. All were saved by hearing and believing. They were saved by the gift of faith. These initially spiritually dead men were brought to life as they encountered the word of God and chose to believe. Hebrews 1 says this, In the Old Testament, God the Father spoke to people personally or through the prophets, but God chose in this age to speak to us through the person of Jesus Christ, his son. When Jesus says a time is is coming and is now here, what he's saying is I have always been saving souls. I've always been redeeming. I've saved many while I'm here on earth already, and a time is coming when many more will be saved through me. Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible tells us he has the exact imprint as the nature of the Father. He has a divine nature. He's not like me, and he's not like you in this aspect. He has no sin. He has a holy nature, a perfect nature, a nature that's uncorrupted and untouched by this world. And he says that he has life in himself. Jesus is the giver of life who creates, sustains, and redeems life. Now, I'm going to ask you what initially is going to seem like a pretty silly question, but I need you to go with me, okay, because we're going somewhere. If you were born, would you please raise your hand? Silly, right? Of course. Everyone was born. If you were born, it means that you owe your existence to someone else. Do you realize that? If you were born, it means that you owe everything you are, your entire existence to someone else. Ultimately, the Bible says that we owe our existence to Jesus, but at the very least, you owe your existence to your parents. You did not choose to be born. I did not choose to be born. You're a product of your parents' choices and maybe a little bit too much wine one night, but that's that's who you are. You are a product of someone else's choices, but it's not so with Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, he's the second person of the Trinity, he's God himself, and one of the most miraculous things about him is he chose to be born as a human. He chose to come to earth. He's the only person in all of history who had any plan or action in how and when he would be born. He's the only person who sustained his own birth. He's the only person who sustained his own birth. Even as his mother Mary was pushing him out into the world, it was his life-giving power that was giving her life. The adrenaline and the epinephrine and the cortisol which flooded her bloodstream as she was giving birth was given And created by him. And even in this text, as he's standing before these Pharisees and he's being interrogated by them, it's his divine life that created their human brains. It's him as the life giver who fashioned the human tongue. It's him who gave them the ability to reason. The only reason these men have enough reason to argue with Jesus is because he's allowing it. And the only reason that they can persecute him is because he's acting according to the plan he and his father made. The persecution he's receiving from these men, the hate and the vitriol. The text told us a few weeks ago that they are seeking to kill him. All these things that he's receiving from him would eventually take his life. And this was all a part of his plan. John 10 Verses 17 and 18 says this, it says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus died of his own will. As the crown of thorns was being twisted about his head, the giver of life would have thought back on the day when Adam and Eve fell and the ground was cursed with these same thorns. Now this curse was being pushed into his brow. Think about this. As as blood poured down his face, he would have remembered the day he chose that specific hue of red. As he was lashed, With whips, he would have remembered the day he created the glenohumeral joint of the the shoulder, which allowed these torturers to whip him so hard. And as the soldiers call for him to lie on his back, he remembers the day he created sound so their voices could travel and demand his submission. As his life is being taken from him, he supplies breath to the lungs of his captors. As they nail metal spikes into his hands, he remembers the day that he hid iron in the bowels of the earth. And as these soldiers pound nails into his feet, he sustains their hearts. He gives them life. He invigorates their cells. He holds the molecules of their bodies together, even as they drive the nails deeper and deeper and deeper. And as they lift him on the cross he would have remembered the day the first seed fell to the ground and died. He witnessed the first tree rise. He knows the rings upon the tree that he hangs upon. He knows how much rain and how much sun was needed to grow it to this height and this weight so it could sustain the bulk of his body and lift him high so that all could see him. And as he looks out upon the world he created, the world that sinned and rebelled against him, through suffering and tears, the giver of life is giving it life. We serve a huge God. Because of our fallen nature, Jesus took upon himself the curse that we deserved, the anger and the wrath that God had towards our sins, The dreadful weight of God's full anger pierced his blameless body and crushed his righteous soul. The father looked upon his son covered in our sin, literally dripping with it, and he turns his face away. And Jesus did this so that we could be forgiven and confidently turn our faces back to our father. It's an amazing Amazing thing. And Jesus tells us that all who believe in his sacrifice, that all who see the truth of their fallen nature and see the truth of his holy nature and believe that he died for them and repent of their sins and and choose to pledge allegiance to Jesus are granted eternal life. No longer are they at enmity with God. We can now have peace with our Father in heaven. Jesus is the Son of God who has life in himself, who provides life to us and provides spiritual life to the spiritually dead. He is the Son of God. But the interesting thing about Jesus is, though he is the Son of God, it's not actually the title that he most preferred for himself. He used it on occasion, but the title that Jesus most preferred for himself is the title, Son of God. Of man. Verse 27 says this, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Here's our second point Jesus is the Son of Man. This is the title that Jesus preferred for himself, and it's used throughout the Bible in a few very important ways. First, throughout the Old Testament, it's a title of humanity. God used the title Son of Man to simply refer to humans he would often just simply speak to someone and he would say, son of man, do this. Son of man, you've done this. Son of man, this is who you are. Men such as Isaiah and David, whom we referenced, were called son of man. But when applied to Jesus, it's an amazing thing because it denotes his humanity. We've talked about Jesus' divinity as God, but Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is God incarnate. He is literally one of a kind. There has never been and there never will be another person like Jesus. Secondly, the Son of Man is a title of divinity. Isaiah and David may have been sons of man, but Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Messiah, the one chosen to save us. Jesus is ultimately the perfect example of all God designed us to be and he came to bring us back into right relationship with god john or sorry luke 19:10 says this for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost thirdly it's a title of humi- humility the son stepped down from heaven he came to earth and get this he served his creation i want you to think about that the god who created every atom in your body The God who created your ability to breathe, who fashioned your lungs, came from heaven to serve you. Matthew 20, verse 28 says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible tells us he was despised, he was rejected, and though he was God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant for us. The son of God became the son of man so that sons of wrath like me and like you could become sons of God again. It's a beautiful thing. Lastly, this title, son of man, is a fulfillment of prophecy the Old Testament prophet Daniel spoke of the coming of the Son of Man in this way. And Daniel seven thirteen through 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. The Old Testament prophet Daniel looked towards the day when the Son of Man, Jesus, would come, and he envisioned this everlasting kingdom full of worship of Jesus And that Jesus would rule the entire world forever. Now why is this title important? Why did Jesus so often choose the title Son of Man? It's important because Jesus points out to us in verse 27 that this Son of Man has a very crucial task. He says he's been given the responsibility of judging all people. Every single person who has ever walked on the face of the earth will one day be judged by Jesus. Every single person. We often hear people say things like, only God can judge me. And it breaks my heart because they often don't know how right they are. Hebrews 10, verses 30 through 31 says this The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is not a trivial thing. But what Jesus is proclaiming about himself is that he is the end times judge who will cosmically judge every human soul. And as these Pharisees are interrogating Jesus, he's essentially saying, you have no idea who I am. One day, all people will stand before me in judgment. And It is my task and my task alone. Now, I want you to envision walking into a courtroom. And you're walking into a courtroom because you've committed some crime of which you are certainly guilty. And there's a judge there, and that judge has been given the task of judging you. Would you rather have a judge who can empathize with you because he's like you, or a judge who is so high above you he can't judge from your point of view? Which would you rather have? I would certainly much rather have a judge who is like me. I would rather have a judge who can see things from my point of view, who can see the world through my eyes and has experienced the kinds of things I've experienced in my life, wouldn't you? A judge who can sympathize with my state, who can empathize with my feelings. And Here's the most wonderful thing about Jesus. Is even though he's God, He became like us, so that when he judges us, he's not judging as someone who can't understand what it's like to be you. Do you realize that? He's not judging you from a point of ambiguity or being oblivious to what's going on in your life. Jesus comes to us as someone who can understand what it's like to walk in our shoes He knows what it's like to struggle as you struggle. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone you love. He knows what it's like to go hungry and cold and tired. He knows what it's like to be hated and despised. He knows what it's like to weep at the death of a loved one. Jesus understands. And I know I'm preaching this Jesus that is God and is certainly high above us in his holiness, but I need you to understand that this is the same God who wants to come near to you. This is the same God who understands more than I do and more than you could ever possibly understand the things you're walking to, Jesus even knows what it's like to face death. Whatever kind of heartache you've endured, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever you brought into this room today, I want you to very clearly understand that Jesus knows and Jesus cares. He's not a judge who's looking down in scorn. No. He's actually a judge with mercy in his eyes. He knows the fragility of human life because he's experienced it. He's felt the constant pulling of temptation, yet he overcame sin. He knows more than any of us the blindness of our own eyes and the wickedness of our own hearts because he walked among us. And yet never fell to sin. Do any of you recall some of Jesus' last words on the cross? Do you remember what he said? When he looked out upon the world that he loved. The world he was dying for. The world who ultimately put him in this shameful state with his Arms nailed to the cross, barely able to breathe. He strained to heaven and he cried out to his father. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Jesus knows that we're helpless. And even though it was his sin that put him on the cross with his faintly beating heart, he overflowed with forgiveness towards us. Jesus is just. He isn't the judge. But he is so full of mercy and compassion for fallen people. I wish I could accurately portray to you how much mercy and love and compassion there is in the heart of Jesus. It's astounding. We can have confidence. That Jesus' judgments are fair because he judges us not only as God, but as a man like us. He has the power to give new life to the spiritually dead. He has the power to judge all men. And lastly, we see that Jesus has the ability to physically raise the dead. Verses 28 and 29 says this, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. When we started this morning, I asked the question, how can I live forever? And I admit it was a bit of a trick question in light of verses 28 and 29 because the truth is everyone lives forever. Everyone lives Forever. Anytime you are looking at another person, you are looking at an eternal human soul that will live forever. And here's our last point. Jesus resurrects into eternal life. Jesus rose from the dead after three days, proving that he was who he was, proving that he was the son of God, proving that he was the son of man. And after this, he returned to heaven where he waits at the father's side until the day he returns to judge the world. At that time, at the hour of his coming, by his all-surpassing power, Jesus will bring back to life every single person who has ever walked on the face of the earth. That's amazing. Every single person. From Mother Teresa to Hitler himself. Every single person. He will forget no one. And whatever degree of corruption they've experienced, whatever kind of horrific things ultimately led to their death, whatever level of decay their bodies have, all these things will be absolutely no obstacle to Jesus' power to resurrect them. And he will take their soul and he will place it back in a body fit for their eternal dwelling. We know the law of conservation of mass, which governs our universe, tells us that matter cannot be created And it cannot be ultimately destroyed, that matter ultimately changes forms. Jesus will omnipotently sweep across all of the universe. He will gather every atom, every molecule that made up every single person, and He will build them back together by the word of His own power. And the amazing thing to me is that as He does this, this unfathomable thing, it won't tax Him in the slightest not even a little bit. On the last day, Jesus will walk into the courtroom. As the judge, he will confidently stride with honor towards the judgment seat as a voice like crescendo of a thousand atom bombs will ring out across our world and it will say, All rise! And every one of us will obediently stand at attention before Jesus. All will rise. Billions of people who've been dead for thousands of years will suddenly awaken from slumber. Eyes that have not seen in millennia will open to see the light of life adorned in gleaming white robes standing before them. His glory will reflect into their eyes and it will bounce into their pupils and their irises and the cones of their eyes will scarcely be able to take in the glory of Christ that's standing before them. Knees that for thousands of years have had no joints and no marrow will be reconstituted and they will run to the feet of Christ and those knees will bow. Vocal cords will be revivified and new lungs will be filled with air. And that air will push across those vocal cords. And every single person that has ever lived from the beginning of time to the end of time will as one cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Jesus is going to do. That is the man who's standing in front of these Pharisees. That is the man they're interrogating. Everyone lives forever. And the true question is this, where will you choose to live forever? Where will you choose? Jesus says those who do good in this life will have eternal life with him, but those who do evil in this life will have eternal life apart from him. will all be placed into new bodies, and those who've done evil will experience the outpouring of God's wrath. The time will be too late. The moment of peace will have passed and they'll be separated from God's grace. And I'll be honest, guys, I hate to preach on this, but I have to preach on it because I, because I want to be a faithful man. But the Bible tells us that those who do not trust in Christ now will ultimately live in hell for eternity. With all of their nerves, with all of their senses, with the ability to experience every moment Hell in the Bible is often compared to dreadful darkness, a lake of fire, a place of great regret, a place where there's constant gnashing of teeth and furious anger towards God. And Jesus says he will judge us by our works, good or evil. And this raises a really big problem for us. Because if good works get us into eternal life with God, And evil deeds send us to hell. Doesn't mean that the Pharisees are right? That's what Jesus says. Those who do good will have eternal life, those who do evil will enter into the judgment. So, doesn't that mean that the Pharisees are correct? Isn't the way to get to heaven, to be forgiven of our sins, simply to be good enough? Shouldn't we focus on rigorous law-keeping, doing the right things all the time to warrant a good ending of our story? And the answer the Bible gives us is emphatically no. Because as we know, there are no good people. Since our works flow from a wicked heart, none of us can truly do anything good. Isaiah said all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. This is why faith is so crucial at this hour. That's why faith is so important. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. And if I read this and you don't understand what Paul is saying, I pray read over it again and again until it clicks. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And get this, my friends, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like the men and women of the Old Testament, we too are saved by faith. They listened to God's words and they were saved. For us, we trust in God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, for the atonement of our sins we believe that if Jesus needed to die to save us, it means we could never save ourselves no matter how much good we do. And so the only option we have is to throw ourselves upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And when we look at our works, certainly those of us have already done that, who have cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, when we look at our works, the good things that we do as those now saved by God's grace Those works now flow from a heart that says, I'm doing these good things because God has been good to me. I'm doing these good things because God has already redeemed me. Not, I'm doing these good things in hopes that God will save me. The most important thing we could ever do. The most important work that we could ever do in this life. If you do nothing else in this life, believe in Jesus. John 6, 28 through 29 says this. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. These works do not save us, but the good things we do authenticate our faith. They prove that our nature has been changed When I look at my life from the man that I was and the person I am now, there's no reason I should love this woman. There's no reason I should care for these children. There's no reason I should pour my life out for you. There's no reason that I would give the shirt on my back to anyone save for the fact that God has changed my heart. It's a sinful man, an awful man, and many times I still am, but God is working new life in us. And I know for many of you, he's working new life in you as well. My friends, everyone lives forever. So you must ask yourself, where do you want to spend eternity? As we close, I ask you to choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day, the ending that you desire. Because those who choose to believe in Christ now are those who will reign with him in the end. They will not come into judgment, but will have eternal life. Jesus is very clear that those who reject him now, he will reject them when he returns to judge the world. My friends, unlike a young Jameson, without foresight as to how the story ends, you now have all you need to know to choose wisely. And I pray that you do for eternity hangs in the balance. Let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly thankful. Lord, we are thankful for what you've done and what you're going to do. Lord, I know it is hard for us to often face the reality of our sinfulness, to face the reality of our fallen world. Lord, I know it is hard to hear that we must choose life or death this day. But Lord, I pray that you would comfort us all. Lord, that we would see that though judgment is real, you have graciously made an escape for us. And you have done so in such a way that you do not ask us to clean ourselves up before we come. You do not ask us to be better. You do not ask us to become holy. You simply ask us to believe. The single thing that you desire for us in order to be saved is faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and spark faith in those who do not believe. Lord, for those who believe, I pray that their faith would be strengthened. Lord, that they would remember that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, we graciously go free and have new life in you. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for the Son of God. We're thankful for the Son of Man. And Lord, we thank you for judging mercifully.